Today's episode is sponsored by NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. NerdWallet's trusted financial journalists use fact-based reporting for some much-needed clarity in the finance world, helping you make smarter decisions with your money. The nerds have helped me get smarter about things like managing finances with a partner without causing a breakup. We all know about that in my life and how hard that's been for me and also my listeners. You guys hear them talking about it on the mailbags. It is hard to manage finances with a partner. Putting away money for retirement, since I'm not going to be doing this podcast forever. Sorry, I guess I could, but retirement is huge for me. I am deeply focused on it right now and planning for my tax bills so I don't dread April every year. Taxes are a doozy and it's always changing. How do you know what to do? Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast on your favorite podcast app. Future you will thank you. You got problems that you ought to be concerned with. Hoo-ah. You don't know how you're supposed to earn it or what to do with it or how to keep it. You're a freak with a dark, shameful secret. But you're not the only one. Get your hidden financial fears with a blast of sun. Now your healing has begun. It's bad with money with gas. Hi, I'm Gabby Dunn, and this is Bad With Money, a show about finances and feelings where we don't talk down to you. A profit is largely defined by having some sort of financial advantage, but way down the list of definitions is one that just says is beneficial. Very vague. Does every business need to operate under the same metric, no matter who it's created by, run by, or serving the needs of? What does it mean to turn a profit when the profit you aspire to isn't necessarily money? What if your definition of profit as a business is different from the one that prevails in general entrepreneurship? The definition of profit that is financially successful. No, beyond just successful. Does a successful business have to make you, the founder, rich? My gut answer is no but the larger conglomerate of money media would heavily disagree with me. It's been interesting in the last few years of working on this podcast to see the dialogue shift from the success of a business being wealth-making and growth in the money sector to being more collective, to having a broader definition. And I know some people won't like it because it's not making anybody rich, but Bad With Money is just that kind of show. For example, in an upcoming episode of this podcast, a guest and I will go through the autobiography slash memoir slash business advice book hashtag girlboss by former Nasty Gal CEO Sophia Amoroso, a 2014 historical document about making yourself wealthy off the backs of, well, everyone around you. During the early 2010s into 2015-ish, this narrative of success for women and marginalized people too dominated. White people predictably crowded back into that sort of feminism and rode the wave of the self-made myth until it broke, taking largely POC exploited by these companies with them. You only need to look at the rush of former employees of these businesses speaking out about horrendous treatment at quote-unquote feminist companies to get a feel for what was going on behind all the empowering facades. The bubble burst. One could say that a business is successful if it serves the people it means to serve in the way those people want to be served, fairly, providing support, inclusive. I talk about this change in today's episode with Dr. Alex Ketchum, a historian of the queer, feminist, and lesbian history of restaurants who focuses on the history of these businesses and establishments. I've chosen to title this episode Business for Women, Feminists, and Lesbians because I think these are groups that, at their core definition, might historically bristle at capitalism and now feel they can again after the shadow of Girl Boss has subsided. 
What does it mean to be a business really for women, feminists, and lesbians? How can that work within a functioning restaurant or other business? What does that mean for the gender binary? Ketchum's research, which is very in-depth and very specific, started with Bloodroot, a restaurant founded by a collection of women in 1977, which defines itself now as a feminist restaurant and bookstore, though it originally had lesbian in the title too. On bloodroot.com, the restaurant is described as having, quote, no cash register and no waitressing. Place your order with a woman seated behind a desk after making your choice from the blackboard menu. Enjoy your food either in our comfortable dining room or on our patio in good weather and bust your own table when you're through. Things are a little different here. It's evident from the moment you step inside the door. This is a feminist vegetarian restaurant. I don't know much about the restaurant itself, but Ketchum does. She wrote into the Bad With Money Gmail account to request to come on and talk about the concept of the female feminist and lesbian business. And she also provides examples of income streams available for feminist, lesbian, women-owned cafes, bookstores, restaurants, and more. P.S. Did you guys know coffee and food have always gone great with books? Our second guest this week is Ashley Feinstein Gersley of The Fiscal Femme, who talks about her experience as a woman at a male-dominated business school, working in corporate finance, and getting her women-owned business certification. What does that mean? Who gives it out? Ashley's book, Financial Adulting, sparks a conversation between us about the dicey word adulting, the infantilization of women's finance media, and how men's overconfident money advice screwed up her own finances. It stuck out to me that Ashley's brand includes the word femme, F-E-M-M-E, a word with a long, diverse history. To some, it just means a woman. To others, it implies traditionally feminine lesbianism, which is how I've always heard it. I asked Ashley about it in a DM after the show, and she said that it's just for the French word for woman. But I couldn't help but note that it is interesting her business is called the Fiscal Femme, and we're also going to be talking about the history of lesbian restaurants in this episode. Coincidence? So first, Dr. Alex Ketchum. I'm Dr. Alex Ketchum. My pronouns are she, her, and I'm a faculty lecturer at McGill University at the Institute for Gender, Sexuality, and Feminist Studies. And I work both as a professor and as a historian of kind of queer, feminist, lesbian history of restaurants. And I also do histories of technology, too. Why restaurants? So it's really tied actually to my personal history. When I was an undergrad at Wesleyan University, I was studying feminist studies and history, and I was really involved with the school's farm and food politics. And I was interested in bringing those research interests and personal interests together. And a friend recommended that I visit Bloodroot Feminist Vegetarian Restaurant in Bridgeport, Connecticut. And so I did, and I became pretty obsessed with it. And I've spent the last 11 years of my life kind of historicizing that restaurant and its place within kind of larger, like queer feminist histories. That is quite a name. What, what is that? What is it? (laughs) It's Bloodroot Feminist Vegetarian Restaurant and Bookstore. Yeah. What does that mean? It really sees itself as being a feminist restaurant for a variety of reasons. Part of it has to do with that they see all the work that they do as being very politically grounded in their own feminism. So the choices around the food they prepare, how they've organized the space of the restaurant, the kinds of events and speakers they have, the way that they share labor tasks within the restaurant. And so that was actually a big part of my own initial research interests is what does it mean for a restaurant to call itself feminist? So I first started off by looking at Bloodroot, but I then looked at over 230 spaces in the United States and Canada to kind of understand, like, what is it to be a feminist restaurant? 
And what is it to be a feminist restaurant? You have done the legwork. Yeah, for sure. So part of it has to do with really challenging a lot of kind of the typical structures of how restaurants are organized. So many of them, but not all of them, got rid of waitresses and waiters as part of the structure because they saw a lot of issues with power differentials um, within the space. They oftentimes actually would have a large window onto the kitchen so that people who were eating there would be aware of the labor behind the food. I mean, now we have kind of like open concept restaurants, but this was less popular in the 1970s. Uh, Part of it is that there would usually be women's art on the wall. So especially in this kind of 1970s, 1980s feminism of these feminist restaurants, a lot of those like women-centered space, there would also be a lot of thought about the sourcing of the ingredients for the food. Some of them would be really into naming the dishes after famous women activists or writers. They would oftentimes bring in poets and lecturers and authors and artists and musicians into the space to have a place to perform and speak to other audiences. Um, They would oftentimes be involved with other aspects of kind of lesbian feminist communities. So they would sometimes, instead of having kind of tips as part of the restaurant, they would have jars to raise money for like a women's softball league or other kinds of organizations. And for some of them, it was about being vegetarian um, because some of them were kind of connecting it in this kind of eco-feminist way of seeing eating meat as connected to like the oppression of women. Wow. So now today, what does it mean to be like a queer restaurant? So some of them still have like women-centered events, but a lot of it is about kind of a broader definition of feminism, which is, and this isn't to say that the restaurants in the 70s and 80s weren't committed to anti-racist work, but there's definitely like a greater understanding of the connections through like intersectional understandings of power around racism, sexism, ableism, uh, transphobia, and all these things. So a lot of the kinds of like Feminist restaurants and more like cafes of today are really kind of involved in more kind of trans rights. I'm really focused on like anti-racism in the forefront. Um, That's not to erase the work of the people from the 70s. It's more about kind of an expanded version. So yes, there are still women involved in those organizations that are identified as lesbian, but may identify as queer and so forth, right? So there's kind of changing political understandings of self, identity understandings, Um, And just, right, there's differences between each generation of what people want to focus on um, as our understandings of feminism shift and evolve. And, you know, I've I've seen uh, queer cafes pop up and then die out. But, you know, obviously West Hollywood is brimming with bars for uh, gay bars in the more uh, male traditional sense, even though they're ostensibly for everybody. But so why are all of these sort of lesbian places closing? Yeah. So part of it has to do with like operating a small business is challenging for one. Right. And then of course, if you have like smaller clientels, sometimes people theorize that lesbian bars are more likely to close because there's less access to capital within kind of like queer women's community. Right. Women may have less money. I think a lot of it is also kind of structural challenges. It was a huge thing for many women to start these like restaurants in the 70s and 80s, because that was still a time when it was legal to deny women credit, right? So credit card companies, um, like it needed to be in your husband's name or your father's name, right? So especially if you're a lesbian woman, right? Like that's going to be really hard already to get a line of credit to open your business, especially if you're a lesbian woman of color, even harder, right? Everything's like another um, barrier. And while it is illegal to 
deny credit on the basis of gender, it's still more difficult for women today uh, to get lines of credit, right? So there's those issues. There's like less overall as a community, less ability to access that kind of capital. And so we still see kind of like queer women's businesses kind of using some techniques that like women did in the 70s and 80s of trying to what we would call crowdfunding today, but they would call community fundraising, different ways of people giving like $5 towards starting these spaces. Um, But I think it's just in general, less access to the financial ability to support these spaces. I also wonder if um, gay male bars have figured out the system of uh, getting straight people to go to them. You know what I mean? Yeah, I think that division around kind of if like lesbian bars, especially when they're really focused kind of on like women-centered space too, that could sometimes be a deterrent for other clientele. One of the reasons for the longevity of some of the remaining lesbian bars is because they are so um, welcoming to straight people or people who don't identify as lesbian. So part of it has to do with some of their marketing. Some of it has to do with certain policies. So I I definitely do think you're right with that. I know in the past you were talking about community fundraising or or crowdfunding, but are there other ways that they use to sort of overcome that kind of thing? So many of them, like when I mentioned Bloodroot in the beginning, Bloodroot feminist vegetarian (laughs) restaurant and bookstore and so they also sold books, right? Because books uh-huh. don't expire the way that food does. Um, so just like other streams of income. But when you look at spaces, a lot of the kind of feminist cafes today are also tied with bookstores. So you can see that with Blue Stockings Cafe and Bookstore, mm-hmm. New York City, uh, Firestorm is also similar, Fulton Books. So there's a lot of times of kind of bringing together food and books or some kind of like physical object people can buy. I kind of see it as a triangle of trying to make a business feminist in that on the one hand, you're trying to offer high quality goods that are ethically sourced. So that oftentimes means that the kind of base products are going to be more expensive. Then you want to make sure that the workers are properly compensated. And if you're looking in the U.S. system too, right, and trying to even provide healthcare for your workers in a small business, right, that's like a whole other challenge as well as making it that they're being paid a living wage or better than a living wage, you know? And then the third thing is that you're also trying to make it that your products that you're selling are also accessible for the people who want to actually eat them or buy them. So if you have high cost of goods and you're also trying to pay the people working properly, trying to create that balance is an ongoing challenge for these kinds of feminist businesses. Yeah. I mean, yes, big time. You know, we had a a journalist named Koa Beck on the show and um, she said something like, uh, we might have to come to the conclusion that feminism is not profitable. Yeah. You know, oftentimes when we're thinking of businesses being profitable, we're thinking in terms of like large scale businesses where their CEO is getting super rich. But the goal with most kind of these smaller feminist, queer businesses that are really grounded in community, not just doing that kind of, as she was talking about, that kind of white feminism, is that it's about trying to make it livable for everyone involved rather than this kind of extractive model. So Mm. it's still a huge challenge. And oftentimes it means that the people involved are working really, really hard 
and putting in a lot of sweat equity when they don't have like actually money to fully support the endeavor. Many of these businesses are also working on kind of collective models, which is pretty key here too, that the workers are actively part of the running and owning of the of the business. What about like earlier than the 1970s, stuff like before they could really advertise? There's a few different like ways to kind of think about this history. And so this is kind of, it's really like kind of in the 70s where you see the lesbianism and feminism coming together with these models. But prior to that, so you have kind of lesbian bar culture of the 40s and 50s. You also have these kind of predecessors of feminist restaurants in the early 20th century, uh, but their goals were a bit different. So there were these suffrage restaurants, but the goals were actually to get men in as customers and then give them lunch for pretty cheap. And then while they were sitting there, uh, people working there would talk to them about why it was important for women to get suffrage, or they would be handing them pamphlets and all this stuff. Wow. So again, it's kind of like a different goal, right? That one is trying to get like one kind of like political right and encourage people to think differently. Whereas the places of kind of the 70s, even through today, are really about people can hang out, socialize, network, and so forth. Yeah. What's the oldest current lesbian feminist or lesbian restaurant? So Bloodroot is the longest that still remains. The first one that I kind of identify within my own work from that period is Mother Courage, which was in New York City in 1972. And it lasted for a few years. And there's some others that are kind of uh, that lasted like quite a long time, but have now closed like Brit Cut in the Bay Area. So how how were these You know, it's interesting. It's like you're talking about the suffrage restaurants where they're like, men, come in. We want to teach you. And then I imagine the other places were like, men, stay away. Yeah. So, I mean, it's a mix, right? You're always going to have like different owners and operators with different goals. So some of them, it was that everyone was welcome, but that there would be kind of a priority and kind of like what was called at the time women's culture, which was oftentimes a way of saying lesbian culture. So it would be like playing the music of women musicians or having women's art on the walls, but that anyone could eat there. They might have like a few like lesbian only events and stuff like that. Whereas uh, some spaces were just always quite welcoming to everyone coming into the space. Uh, I'm working on something about Eve Adams who ran Eve's Hangout, which was a lesbian bar in the United States in like, to in New York in the 20s. And uh, there's a sign on the, there was like allegedly, people don't know if it's it was true, it was a rumor, that there was a sign that said men admitted but not welcome. Oh, nice. And I was like, put it on my house. Uh, but yeah, there was kind of like that vibe of, like there's some story in the book where a guy rolls in and he sits down and everyone's like very tense and he doesn't seem to realize where he is. And then he leaves and everyone's like, whoo, it's not like that today. But I do think there are like there's a party in Los Angeles called Gay Astrology. And I think that's kind of like I remember saying one time like, oh, I want to bring a friend of mine who's visiting from out of town. He's a cis straight guy. And people were like, no. Mm-hmm. Um, And I think like that's, there's two different types of places even today. Yeah, definitely. And I think that it's really important for different communities, whether we're talking about different queer communities or other communities that are marginalized for whatever reason, to be able to have spaces that are 
prioritizing their needs and having a space of kind of reprieve. You know, there are people who will feel threatened that those spaces exist, but I'm a big advocate for the need for that kind of space. And I think there's something that's lost when communities don't have a permanent physical space that they can go to and know that that space is about their needs. It's hard because, you know, as someone who is queer and goes on tour or sells merch or sells a book, you know, like I'm very conscious of, you know, places want me to charge a certain amount. I'm very conscious of like, listen, queer and trans people don't have money. We just don't. Mm -hmm it's hard to explain to venues or to other places, you know, why I want to give my book away. How do I mean, is it just like that we have more of a community mindset? I always feel like slightly resentful when, you know, like um, a friend of mine is a model and she was like debating taking this modeling gig with this company that like historically hasn't been that great with trans people and she's trans. And then I was like, imagine just like looking at these cis models who are just like, I'm going to take the job and they don't ever have mm-hmm. to think about it. And so like, how, it, how do we like reconcile capitalism and and feminism and business and then not do it in a way that's like, well, I just want to look out for number one, but then also like be community minded and don't fall apart. <laughs> you can't answer that whole thing, but... I just was like, what the, what, why, and why? Yeah, I think there are some strategies. So one thing, for example, that some kind of lesbian academics and writers and authors in the 1970s would do, they would try to get a paid gig at a university because universities oftentimes have speaking honorariums or might pay for your travel to come speak. And then they would do a second event at the local like lesbian feminist restaurant for free. So they would be able to subsidize their other kind of community focused work with work from organizations that paid more. So that can be one strategy. I mean, I think one of the reasons why it's so difficult to try to reconcile capitalism with feminism is because capitalism is inherently oppressive. So you're never going to find that like complete balance of the system. So it's trying to make it workable and livable. I think um, one thing that's been interesting is, you know, I'll say, hey, someone can't afford my book. Can someone, a gay person who can afford it, get buy it for them? And like that, like, or I didn't even come up with that. Someone else came up with that. Like, I think people will look out for each other sometimes in that way if you give them the opportunity. And I mean, when it comes to like books and writing and stuff, that's also a challenge in terms of getting the words to people who want them or need them. But also one thing is getting copies to libraries. And as authors, you still get a little bit back when books are checked out from libraries. But so encouraging for anyone listening, if there's authors that they want to support, actually trying to encourage their local libraries to purchase copies of that book, because not only can they access it, the authors also are compensated a little bit and so forth. I also really like a physical book in Mm -hmm, my hands, mm -hmm. right? When that's possible. How did the trajectory look for women of color? Like, let's say specifically Black women and these restaurants. So the majority of the restaurants in the 70s and 80s were, like I mentioned before, right, there's already a challenge of getting a loan as a woman and then as a like lesbian woman. That's why my work also looks at 
lesbian feminist coffee houses because coffee houses are these kind of temporary spaces, pop-up events, regularly scheduled meetings, but they didn't own the space. So they could happen in church basements or they could happen in community centers. And those tended to have more women of color involved in organizing because you needed less access to capital during that period. So that's also a challenge too, is if a business only exists for a couple of years, it's less likely for their own documents to go to archives, right? And for those histories to be recorded. Or to even find ads, you know, or like to find any anyone who attended or exactly. anything like that. So much of our history is just lost. Yeah, definitely. And one great source that I found, um, gay women's travel guides. So those can kind of serve as ways to at least get a name or an address and kind of a starting point. But a lot of it is unrecorded or lost or with a few individuals who, you know, many of our elders are aging quite a lot and we're at risk of losing some of these histories. Or they passed away. Wow. If you're like going to open a queer business today, like how can you learn from past feminist or, or lesbian spaces? So a big piece of advice was getting an accountant at the beginning to really have a good system for organizing one's books. Many of these spaces actually had 501c3 tax status, so as nonprofits. So that was really helpful um, in their organizing. And that was also a huge part of their branch of like their community organization. So they um, had their status kind of as a club those are kind of some initial things. Some of them are like early on, don't skimp on the expenses of getting a lawyer and an accountant who can make sure that you're set up in a good place. The ones that also did quite well had a community already behind them before they even opened their doors. So they did what we would call kind of pop-up events today. So they would hold community dances or different fundraisers so that people were already contributing money to the space before it opened. And they're invested in the the space succeeding because they saw themselves as part of creating that space. Um, And also diversifying different sources of revenue was also pretty helpful. And yeah, and so I think a lot of the spaces that we see today are doing that, which is great, (laughs) which is probably why they um, have continued to exist throughout the pandemic, um, which is, of course, a challenge for all small businesses. And I think probably also nowadays, like having a staff that, you know, if someone walks in, they think, oh, that person looks like me rather than, you know, having only cis people working there or having only white people working there, having only, you know, there's these other businesses like gyms that cater to all kinds of people and have like, uh, you know, people with disabilities who are able to like train other people there. I just sometimes I feel the burden of, you know, these running these businesses that are community spaces and it's like at the expense I, I don't know, but I, but then it's like, do you even want to be rich? What you want to do is be rich in community and be rich in everyone working together. And that's like the ideal goal. And I guess has been since <laughs> since the uh, 40s, 50s, 70s now. Yeah. And that, and that wasn't really the goal. It was. Yeah. The goal just was to be for, safe. Yeah. To be safe. And for a lot of the people working at them, it was one of the only jobs they could have where they could be an out lesbian, right? And so that was really important to have a job where they could be out and be themselves at. Wow. 
Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. Uh, I love when people have uh, one specific thing that they know so much about. That's my absolute favorite. Uh, so thank you. Where can people find uh, you and more about you and your work? You can follow me on Twitter at aketchum22. So it's kind of a pun on catch22. So A-K-E-T-C-H-U-M 22. Uh, you can follow, you can pre-order my book, Ingredients for Revolution, through Concordia University Press. Uh, so it's coming out later this fall, but you can pre-order it now and it'll also be available open access. And uh, you can go to my website, alexketchum.ca. And you can also visit thefeministrestaurantproject.com. Cool, thank you so much. Thanks so much. Next, we're going to hear from Ashley Feinstein-Gersley of the Fiscal Femme on being a woman in corporate finance and what the benchmarks are to be considered a women-run business. I'm Ashley Feinstein-Gersley. My company's The Fiscal Femme. My new book's Financial Adulting. My Instagram and all my socials are at The Fiscal Femme. So what is The Fiscal Femme? It is a, I call it a feminist money platform. So a lot of conversations about money in newsletter format, book format, social, lots of different ways. How did you come to starting it and why? It's a good question. So I started it because I needed it myself, which might be a, a story that you hear quite often in this space. But I studied finance, worked in finance, still knew nothing about my own money, made a ton of mistakes um, that I wrote about in my first book that came out at a similar time to your book, which is when I discovered you and your amazing work. So many of the financial educators were old white men. And one of my friends had a friend getting a life coach certification and she needed some hours. So I was working with her and I had this fear of having a voice on the internet. And so she challenged me to share what I was learning on my money journey on a blog. And that was the blog, The Fiscal Femme. And so that's where it kind of all began. And when I started writing about it, other people started saying, hey, can you help me too? And some websites said, hey, can you write for us? We want a young young woman's voice to talk about money. And so um, it kind of went from there. Well, what do you mean you were working in finance, but you didn't know anything? <laughs> Yeah, it's another really good question. So, in five, I was an investment banker, and what? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so many stories for you, but I, yeah, I worked in investment banking. It was really all company finances, and when I studied finance in school, that's it was all corporate finance. So I was a lot of the things I now realize I can apply to my personal finances, but we never talked about. There wasn't even a personal finance class offered. Um, at Wharton. And then at in my investment banking job, yeah, there was it was all dealing with company finances, never my own. So you're saying in that environment, they did not have any personal finance taught at all? What There was no like, maybe you could start your own business information? There might have been like a startup class or something like maybe VC, but definitely not like, here's how to budget, here's how to invest. I'm thinking about like management. We had management classes. We had legal studies, accounting, corporate finance, but never uh, like a personal finance 101, not available. And then when you were working as an investment banker, was there anything that was like 
take care of your own stuff. It was just take care of the company. Right. It was it was learning how to do the internal processes for these businesses' finances, whether they were like raising money or buying another company. But I do think, and I find this when if I speak at a bank, there's extra shame in working at a bank and not knowing about money. I think we there was a lot of pretending. For me, I felt very alone. Like, oh, I feel like everyone else understands this and I should know more. And not only did that not feel good, but it had me trust people and take advice from people that I probably shouldn't have and lose money as a result. Wow. That's what, what do you mean by taking advice? Like what was going on? I'm just so curious of the behind the scenes of this. I remember we had an office that I shared with multiple coworkers and one of the guys was talking about this investment opportunity and that it was going to make so much money. And, you know, I was sitting there feeling, I should know more about this, but I don't want to miss out. I'll, I guess I'll just do what this that what he's recommending. And so I took the advice, lost at the time a ton of money to me, thousands of dollars. And, and I it, that was a very much a never again moment for me where I said, I'm going to figure this out. I'm never again going to just blindly take advice from someone else that will greatly impact my finances. So you're working in investment banking. You think you don't know anything. And then this guy is like, I know stuff. And at least for me, I would feel pressure to be like, well, he must know something. Yes, totally. I thought, well, I believed he must know something. I, you know, I took the confidence for that he spoke with that he actually had that knowledge when you know, he didn't. And I, I I see this when working with couples too. Often men have will not know much more, but sound more confident. Yeah. And working with couples, you're right. Like I wonder if the the if it's a heterosexual couple or a, a straight passing couple, like you, you might think, oh, the the guy's talking with so much confidence, so he should he must handle like he should handle it or something. And uh, well, I, I get you know, it's like societally ingrained where you're like, this man's voice must be true. Right. It's the whole like repeating the same thing, but mm-hmm. they're they're taken seriously. So so that's something that I'm passionate about is breaking down some of these more complex topics in the information that you actually need to know and that and having people understand that you can, understand this enough to make good decisions. What are some ways like that you approach gearing content towards women or advice for different types of women? So I was so excited for this book that I that came out a couple months ago, Financial Adulting, because I interviewed 35 experts from all different backgrounds it, with all different expertises. It's mostly a how-to, but it's also a bit of an expose on our financial systems and how what's wrong with them and how they're serving people differently. So for example, I interviewed a real estate broker and entrepreneur named Fee Gentry, and she educates brokers on how to serve people of color, women of color when they're in the housing process. And so that advice is very specific to someone who might be discriminated against. Two other things that I did that I was really excited about is I hired a sensitivity editor, Dr. Kaday, to read it and make sure the book was actually truly inclusive. And um, I also hired a fact checker Mm -hmm. who who I kind of want to follow me around in life because it was so helpful. And even little things like I remember saying – 
many people use bankruptcy as a financial maneuver to make money or build wealth, right? And she's like, well, I don't think we should say many, you know, it's mm-hmm. some. So even just my descriptors were sometimes they they were leading to less factual things. So it makes sense because, you know, we just did an episode uh, with Koa Beck about sort of girl boss narratives. And I struggle on this show with by giving practical advice while also not trying to like like create more sort of capitalist like we're we're winning by being liberals you know like i i try um and it's hard especially to like going into later seasons not you know being trans and not really identifying um as a woman but then having been socialized as a woman so it's hard to like Think of, you know, you don't want to ask the the questions that are like, what are obstacles facing women in business? But then, you know, realistically, you're talking about there are realistic obstacles. There are things that are harder for black women. There are, you know, so like how, how do you address like, you know, you were talking about obstacles to owning a home or things like that. Like, how do you address these these things with like an eye towards, okay, this is going to be different for different types of people. You know, it always reminds me of like the negotiation narrative. Right. There's so many issues with many of the personal finance narratives, but like women need to negotiate more or if you're not being paid, you need to negotiate, but like not acknowledging the actual penalties for negotiating in that way. And there are studies that are saying like women are negotiating as much as men, but not talking about why or what are some of the repercussions of that. I think so. I think it's important to say, here's kind of what's wrong, but here's how to navigate that system because that's what we have right now. And talking about what we want to change and what needs to change. um, And of course, you know, it's one book. So there could be an entire book on navigating the homeownership process. There could be more of them by people who aren't (laughs) white dudes. Exactly. Yeah. So many books needed. So I think having more nuanced advice specific to communities that are experiencing money in different ways is a way to tackle it in the financial literacy area. But then, of course, like we need corporate policy Mm -hmm. changes, public policy changes to change how different communities are experiencing money as well. well. How do you feel about the word adulting? Um, one thing that I have noticed is that people financial adult at different ages and some don't have the privilege to financial adult later like I did, right? They have to financial adult while they're still children because that's the reality of their home. But I do think that it is people are thinking the book is for people coming into their first job when a lot of us are not financial adulting. We want to be doing a lot, like there's estate planning in here, tax planning. There's so many things that are helpful regardless of our age. But I do think people view adulting as something for young adults. Yeah. Or that I think I remember a while ago, a critique of the word being like what you said, you know, I that's not a choice that I had. I was an adult when I was nine or I had to take care of things when I was, you know, not even take care of things, but I was seen by society as an adult when I was 12, 13, um, which I think is something that happens to black black people more often. But I do think adulting is a word that like publishers love. So, <laughs> you know, they can't right. get enough. Uh, they love it. Right. Yeah. So it's. I think it's very important to acknowledge the privilege in adulting because you might have to be worrying about your bills when you are 12 and you right. are not yet an adult. 
Right. So yeah, it is it is an interesting I was just an aside, I was just curious. Um on your Instagram, you know, you have like AAPI businesses, black owned businesses. It's kind of this thing of where people say business versus like women's business, but then, you know, how does that help customers know who to support and like how can you be sure that a company is, you know, is advertising itself that way and like is actually real? Yes. So there's a chapter in the book called Consumer Activism. It's essentially using our money to vote for the things that we believe in. So, And it can look so different depending on what's important to you. But something that's important to me is supporting like women-owned businesses, BIPOC-owned businesses, LGBTQ-plus-owned businesses, like diversely-owned businesses with bigger companies having diversity on management. I know someone – I interviewed three people for the book on their consumer activism criteria, so what they look for in companies before spending money with them. Some were about labor practices specifically, like that was their number one. Um, some were about solely the environment. So it's it's very personal, but those are all community source. So having like our Instagram community say who their favorite businesses are in those communities was it was a way to showcase those businesses. I remember when I got the my women-owned business certification, it was just me. I had no employees it was i had full ownership but the process to certify was like months and hours because so many people do do tricky things and manipulate things in order to get those certifications wait what do you mean what's a women owned business certification this is the first time hearing of this so there's different certifications one of them is that i got was webank so it's a women owned business to prove that i am because some companies try to track their minority-owned businesses or diversity dollars. And so it was a way to be vetted in advance for companies to be able to track that. I remember just being shocked at how simple my company is and how small and how much information they needed to prove that I was women-owned. But I think it is because so many people try to get it and they might do something where you know they give it's women-owned, but then they have a large loan to a man or something. So there is some control there. Um, so different ways to make it look women-owned when it's not. And Wait. I'm sure that happens in, in all types of businesses. Who is certifying this? It's WeBank. W-B-E-N-C is the, the one that, um, that I did. And I know states do it as well. New York City does it. And the idea is you're registering with these people so that other places can look and find businesses run by women? Yes. And because you mentioned, how do you know it's real? Yeah. And it is that, okay, they've gone through this vetting process and I can trust. So it's a, a, a certification in that way, I think. Where do you, what do you do? You put it on your website, certified? You can put the logo on your website or on your, I guess it depends on the type of business. If like, let's say you have a flyer of some sort, you can put right. it there. Yeah. Whoa, I never heard of this. So like well, the process was, what do they ask for? So they asked for a lot of things, um, like the ownership, P&Ls, taxes, a lot of documentation. And then there is an interview where someone comes to your office, which what? now, you know, to my home. You know, they want, not only do they want to know that it's owned by me, that I'm, but also that I'm making the decisions. They came to your house? They came to my house, yeah. And what did they ask you? Just about the business. And they also want to support you in growing your business. Um, and they do hold events where they try to connect you. Interesting. Do they have do you know if they have it for like LGBTQ businesses or they do, yes. And I'm I think it's minority owned. 
What? I don't know if there's like a black owned one or if it's more um, broad, but then yes, LGBTQ plus owned businesses is one as well. Wow, paperwork. (laughs) They love to give you paperwork. How have you seen advice for women entrepreneurs like change over the last like five years, let's say? It's definitely changed a lot. The space has become a lot more diverse. I think something that was a big problem and still continues to be in a lot of the financial experts is that this idea that we're starting from the same place and encountering the same barriers. And I think that's there's a lot less tolerance for that in conversations in the space now, which is good. I think, you know, there can be so much comparison and seeing, you know, I I saved this much by the time I was this age. And then it's like, okay, did you have student loans? Like, are you black? What are you earning? You know, there's so many factors. With the book, it was when I interviewed, every chapter is an area of personal finance. So there's goals, income, debt, retirement, investing. And it was just every single area is, is affected. That's a very important part of the conversation. I think it's also been interesting to watch it change from hey, girly, we got to make you rich to like not everyone. You're talking about everyone being different from where they're starting from, but everyone being different from what they want. Like not everyone is like, I would like to be a millionaire. I would like to be rich or like I want to surpass everyone in my life. Like not (laughs) that I'm seeing that more and more shifting to like community and and mutual aid and like um, making enough money to just like be able to live an an okay life. But in a but a life that you deem good, I'm I'm saying okay life. But you know what I mean. Where like it's not like now I fly first class. It's like now I can like help people around me and like have you know vibe and whatever. And so yes. I think it's changed a lot from like the early I would say like 2010s you know to 2015 narrative of like we all we all are gonna become like rich white ladies and that's how we crush the patriarchy question mark (laughs) right this might work um yeah and I also think too it was very okay you save you save you save some people might actually get to retire at some point you know and everybody wants to buy a house I think it used to be very um formulaic and now some you know people want to take time off to travel if they can or they want to just one of the goals is just to be able to do work they are they care about, you know, people's goals um, and what financial wellness and success is has definitely changed. It's very interesting. I, I have seen it shift from like you have the same hours in the day as Beyonce do like I remember those right like we've talked about this with Koa Beck but like merch like feminist merch and we talked about it in our corporate pride episode like the sort of you know merch of it all and the labor I mean in fast fashion we talked about like you know these women-owned businesses but or or you know certain businesses that then even like they're run by a man but they print shirts that are like you know it's wine o'clock somewhere or whatever and they're being made by like (laughs) women of color who are sewing them by hand like there's I feel like it's been great for awareness for a certain subsect of person But it is like this, you know, thing where it's like, okay, but now what do we want? If we don't want to all be rich white ladies, then like, who wants what and what do we want? Yeah, 
That's a really good question. I know that that part is important. Also, something I learned, I interviewed Tanya Hester, who wrote Wallet Activism for the oh, book. Oh, yeah. And we were talking about just like the use – because people are wanting to support companies that align with their values. And so the pinkwashing – the greenwashing, the queerwashing, mm-hmm. like all the things that are happening with these brands. Even, you know, I was sad to learn that Annie's is not is owned by a, a white man, you know. It was like, oh, I guess going back to your always make sure to do a little research because sometimes what's on the on the outside is not exactly what's what the company's practices are and who they're supporting and who how they're treating their people. There's so many layers to it. And I think it can get overwhelming, but taking like one decision at a time um, can make it more manageable. I mean, a criticism that this show has gotten is like, it's not making anyone rich. And I'm like, you got it. (laughs) You did it. That's uh, that's the thing. There's other podcasts that do that. It's not what we do here. So, yeah, thank you so much for being our our guest. Um, Where can people find you and more about you? They can find me on all the socials at The Fiscal Femme. And then the book is at financialadultingbook.com. Thank you. Thank you for having me. What's your favorite lesbian or women-owned business? Why is it your favorite? How do you support it? I would love to hear from you. Be sure to send me an email at gabbyisbadwithmoney at gmail.com or leave me a voicemail at 844-474-4040. You can also email me a voice memo if you prefer. Join our online communities too. We are on Instagram, Discord, TikTok, Patreon, and Facebook. Links to all of these will be listed in the episode description. And don't forget to listen to the show the day it drops so we can get on the charts and spread the word. Also, I read five-star Apple reviews on our mailbag episodes, so go leave a review and I will read it on our mailbag. Also, my new book and audiobook is out on Scribd Originals. It's called Stimulus Wreck. Please go get it. Okay, love you. Bye. Done. When everyone's on the same page, getting things done at work is easy. No matter what you do or what industry you're in, how you communicate is key. Everything you type is equally important to collaboration, and Grammarly can help. Think of it as your AI writing partner empowering you to communicate effectively and efficiently so you can make a bigger impact in the workplace. 96% of Grammarly users say it helps them craft more impactful writing. And as the gold standard of responsible AI, Grammarly is your secure AI writing partner that allows your team to make their point and move faster. By understanding your writing and context, Grammarly provides relevant, personalized suggestions. And with tone suggestions, you can navigate even the most difficult work conversations. You can also save time from spending hours editing drafts to just seconds with one click. Sign up and download Grammarly for free at Grammarly.com slash podcast. That's G-R-A-M-M-A-R-L-Y dot com slash podcast. Easier said, done.